Welcome back to Biblical Time Machine, your favorite Bible history podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I am here, as always, with the amazing Helen Bond, Professor of Christian Origins at the University of Edinburgh. Helen, we're finally doing it. We are finally <laughs> dedicating an come. episode to your boy, Josephus. Finally. <laughs> My boy, Josephus. I know I'm so excited. I can hardly contain myself. We, I think every episode we mention this guy, <laughs> Josephus, and um, and we've been a long time getting to him, but here he is. Drum roll. This I know. Is Josephus. It's so hard to book Josephus. We've been calling his people, and he's like, he's busy. He's doing this press tour. So, you know, it takes a while. Finally, we Finally. tracked him down. All right. And, and we're not doing this by ourselves. We are bringing in a colleague of yours and another Josephus expert. So please tell tell the uh, listeners about Kim. Yeah, we're we're very happy that we're going to be joined by Dr. Kim Tchaikovsky, who is not only a senior lecturer in ancient history at the University of Edinburgh, but she is an amazing authority on all <laughs> things um, to do with Jews under Roman rule, particularly Josephus, because, you know, how else do you know anything at all about Jews under Roman rule except by being an expert on Josephus? So <laughs> we're really lucky to have her. This is going to be a good one. Nice. And you and, you and Kim like co-teach a class at, at, uh, at, at Edinburgh, right? <laughs> we do, yeah. Although I'm in the theology or divinity school and she's in um, classics, we, we have a sort of an interdisciplinary course nice. and we get students from both groups in it. And um, yeah, we do Roman Judea, basically. So it's just a, a Josephus fest. You know, we're all, <laughs> we, we're enjoying ourselves and just talking about Josephus. And I, I think the school, the, the, the students like it too. So, I've, um, I've heard it's like sold out. I mean, people are trying; they camp out to register for it. So that's what I've heard. If, if only, if only. We, we do, we do get our quota though. Yeah. So, nice. so, so we have to cap the, the some of these courses. But yeah. So it's a, it's, it's a good, it's a good excuse to talk about Josephus with your mate. I mean, what more <laughs> do you need? <laughs> All right. Well, let's see if we can talk about him a little bit more in today's episode. And uh, yeah, let's get to our conversation with Kim Tchaikovsky about our best pal, Josephus. Well, hello, Kim Tchaikovsky, and welcome to Biblical Time Machine. Hi, thanks for having me. So you and Helen are old pals over there at the University of Edinburgh, and you guys talk about <laughs> Josephus day That's and night. Not, not old, I, you know, good friends <laughs> and colleagues talk about Josephus day and night. It, it's all very new to me, so maybe you could help, you know, just give a little intro for our listeners and just why why do you guys talk about josephus so much why is he so important for historians and students of biblical history just yeah why is it josephus such a big deal yeah i think actually you've kind of cottoned on to it in that why josephus is important depends on what 
you're interested in or what mm. the readers are interested in. So um, I come at this more from an ancient historian's perspective. I'm really interested in the Roman Empire mm. and how people live uh, in the different territories of the Roman Empire and how they interact with Rome and so on. And then Josephus is basically our only long narrative source about one particular region of mm. the Roman Empire, i.e. Judea. Um, so he's completely invaluable because he writes about this place multiple times. So for me, there's an awful lot there in kind of subjects writing back, as it were, it's sometimes said. If you're more interested in kind of the New Testament idea and the history of Christianity and the origins of Christianity, he's then also this really, really detailed source on exactly the area where early Christianity is developing, life of mm. Jesus and so on. Um, for not an awful, he writes not a lot not an awful lot of time later. So he's the end mm -hmm. of the first century. Um, so it gives an awful lot of texture and a different source from the New Testament. Um, and from a wider ancient historical perspective as well, he gives us this long narrative account of this huge rebellion under mm. Rome in the early empire, which again, we just don't really have elsewhere at all either. So there are various reasons why a lot of different people get interested in Josephus and then want to take lots of different things out of him as well. So, yeah, so you talk about how unique he is as, as a historian, as a writer in, in Judea. Are there other, are there Josephuses in other Roman provinces or is he that, is he even, you know, that unique among all the provinces? I pretty much no. Um, wow. So you get Greek writers under Rome, mm. but not doing the history of a province in the same way, let's put it that way. So you get plenty of people like Dionysius of Halicarnassus, okay, who's writing a bit earlier than Josephus. So under the first Roman emperor, emperor under Augustus, writes this really big, like universal history almost of um, the sort of Roman antiquities. So he's kind of writing Roman history. So you get plenty of Greek writers writing history under Rome, but it's not quite the same thing. So he really is pretty unique. And we know so much mm. about him too. I think that's one of the amazing things. You know, he's writing about the same time as the as the Gospels. So, you know, he's he's writing about the same time as Matthew Luke. Um, but you know, we just know so much more about him, which is really fascinating. And he wrote an autobiography mm. as well. So, Kim, can you tell us a little bit about his his own family background? What does he tell us yeah, about? Uh, well, himself? this is the other interesting thing that we know something about him, as you said, because he actually writes this autobiography, <laughs> which is it's the first one we've got that survives from antiquity. We know mm. there are others before. It's just that we only have fragments of them. We've got the whole one of this. So he is um, from a priestly family, he tells us very directly. He seems to have been fairly precocious as a child. He's quite proud of the fact that when he's about 14, lots of prominent people come and ask him to explain matters of the Jewish law to them and so on. So he's very, uh, he's not reticent about his own abilities. In um, he also says that on his mother's side, he is connected to the Hasmoneans, which was the previous kind of ruling dynasty in Judea as mm. well. Um, and then we get various other details about his life. So he claims that he spent time with each of the various groups in Jewish society at this time. He, it, sects is usually the term that's mm. used. So the Pharisees, the Essenes, um, and the Sadducees and so on, so that he could determine which was the best and which he liked the best and then oh. sort of pick. So he furthered his own education in that particular way as well. Um, we know that he went to Rome 
in around about 63, 64, to try to get the release of some Jewish priests who were in Rome, and he was successful. Hmm. Um, he appealed to the emperor's wife at that time, Papaya, um, so this is near uh, his wife. Um, and then in 66, he becomes involved in the big Jewish revolt, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit later. Right. So that's the kind of broad outline. So he's all right. So to recap, he's 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 Jewish. He's from this sort of priestly class. He sounds he's educated, and he seems to be doing some like diplomacy, right? He's sort of a, a, a diplomat of some sort with Rome. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, that's a nice nice way of putting it. Okay, all right. So we have that background. So you know, when I sometimes when I write things. And, and I'm mentioning Josephus, I'll say, like, the Jewish-Roman historian Josephus, am I getting that wrong? Like, is, can he be Jewish and Roman at the same time? It, yes, absolutely. And so he mm. becomes a Roman citizen later in his life, mm. after the revolt has happened and after he has moved to Rome, because he has quite a close relationship um, with the Roman emperor at the time, Vespasian, who also... A, grants him freedom after he was captured during the war and makes him a Roman citizen. Mm. That's when we come to call him Flavius Josephus. It's uh -huh. after he's basically because he has become that uh, become a citizen. So he is absolutely Roman and Jewish at the same time, and this is completely possible. All right. All right. Well, Helen knows that I get obsessed about names. So, like, okay. So you say later he becomes Flavius <laughs> Josephus. So. What would he? What would his friends would have called him when he was just old Joe from Jerusalem? <laughs> well, he was Joseph ben Matityahu, so okay. Joseph, son of Mat Matthias, originally. Oh, cool. So we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, though. Anyway, with uh, Josephus as a Roman citizen, but um, first of all, we've got the the small event of <laughs> the Jewish Roman War that breaks out in sixty six, and I know this is hugely complicated because Kim and I are teaching a class on this at the moment, and uh, we're looking at every aspect of uh, Judean life. But just sort of what are the main headlines then? What what, what happens to Josephus in this? He, what, where, where does he go and what okay, does he do? So it's very difficult to give an overview. I will try my best, but... At the start, we call it the Jewish-Roman War, and we term it often the First Revolt or the Great Revolt and so on, because there are a couple of other Jewish rebellions later, um, What another one in Judea, but others in what's called the Diaspora, so Jews living elsewhere, mm. basically, in the empire. Now, the reason I'm skirting around this is there are many people who think that initially this wasn't aiming to be against Rome. Okay, so this was kind of a, a regional conflict between um, different groups within the area that then gets completely out of hand. And only a few of these groups, or one or two, were actually anti-Roman. But hmm. they then become sort of supreme as the revolt kind of goes on. And so it becomes the great revolt against Rome. Um, Josephus within this is very explicit. He claims to have been completely opposed to this revolt when it breaks out, right? He was one of those who just thought this was a really bad idea and the Jews should not be rebelling against the Romans and so on. Nonetheless, he becomes commander in Galilee, in one of the regions, um, and is involved in this revolt. Um, 
just to come back, uh, so I'll come back to what Josephus is doing in the revolt a little bit later, but then this progresses, and the reason that this is very, very important and is kind of a landmark in Jewish history in particular is because in 70, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed Mm. by the Romans. And this has huge implications also for kind of Jewish identity and how perhaps Judaism is formed as a religion or indeed functions as a religion because this was the real center for the Jewish people at that time. This was the only place that sacrifice could take place. In some ways, it was where um, the Jewish God was thought to reside in some senses, the kind of spirit. So its destruction is absolutely huge. Mm -hmm. It is like this is just absolutely decimated the people, their customs, everything. Before that, so Josephus goes off to be commander in Galilee and he does his best, um, despite the fact that there are various (laughs) other people who he claims are trying to undermine him while he was, uh, while he is sort of trying to keep things together in Galilee. But eventually the Romans do come along. Um, and then there is a big siege in 67 at Yodfat or Yotapata, which I think we'll come back to in a bit. And he ends up being taken captive. Um, or rather he surrenders actually explicitly Hmm. to the Romans and is then prisoner in sort of the Roman camps um, for a couple of years. And actually then at the siege of Jerusalem, a bit later before the temple is destroyed, is sort of used to try to persuade all the rebels to surrender to the Romans. Hmm. He's sort of used by the Romans to actually try to convince them that this is a really bad idea and they should just give up. And after then, he then goes back to Rome with the Flavians, with the new dynasty and so on, um, and sort of lives out his life there. So he has an interesting career, as it were, as a general in the war that he does sort of initially is very reluctant, but then sort of does get involved, but then goes over to the Romans pretty quickly as well, in some senses. So what what about the story of uh, Jotapata, as I tend to call it, much more anglicised version? So uh, what happens there and and, and do we believe him? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this is one of the biggest sieges. I mean, this is um, a a sort of war of sieges in some ways. Um, This is a point where Josephus ends up at Jotapata or Yodfat, it's a siege that lasts 47 days. So the town is on top of a hill. It's quite well fortified, but there was no natural water supply to this town, which then makes it quite problematic for all of the kind of citizens of, of Jotapata, for Josephus there, for all of the rebels hold up there um, to actually keep things going. So actually, 47 days is fairly impressive, I think, under those circumstances that they really did hold on to this for a while. But eventually, and there are lots of stories as well as what's happening during this siege to basically for the Jews to try to hide what dire straits they're in and how desperate the situation is from the Romans who are besieging them on the outside. Um, The Romans being as well Vespasian and Titus, Vespasian who sort of will become the emperor and Titus's son, so really prominent people from later, later too. But eventually things don't go to plan, the Romans do sort of manage to break through and break in. And then Josephus and I think about 40 other fairly prominent citizens um, from Jotapata sort of managed to get away to a cave 
Nibai. And then there is a debate, basically, as Josephus says, as to what they should do. Um, and the majority want to kill themselves. They want to commit suicide to avoid sort of mm. dishonorable surrender to the Romans. They think this is the honorable thing to do. And Josephus argues quite strongly against that. He says, no, we shouldn't, that this would be impious as well. We should not be doing this and we should surrender instead. He doesn't win that debate. They do not agree with him. So instead, he suggests, okay, let's avoid committing suicide. We'll draw lots and each pair will um, run each other through with a sword, basically. Um, so this is what happens. They think, okay, this is a good solution. And mysteriously, somehow, Josephus manages to be the la in the last pair with the one other last person. And to um, paraphrase rather horribly, Essentially, they look at each other and just go, nah, and then Josephus <laughs> surrenders to the Romans. Um, See, I thought, I thought he was going to say, like, okay, on the count of three, everybody kill themselves. Like, one, <laughs> two, and then he just runs out the door. Not quite that. <laughs> but pretty close. Okay. Wow. <laughs> it's like, what is it, Life of Brian, the Suicide Squad. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite that. Not quite. All right. So, okay. So he, okay. Yeah. Obviously, he's giving his his account of how these things went down. And like Helen said, you know, what do we we sort of have to take him at his word because we don't have anybody else's word. But he he has. You you keep talking about Vespasian. So d does he have? Does he kind of forge a special relationship with this Roman leader? And and how does that work out for him? Yeah, he does. So. um as a bit of context, at the same time as this revolt is going on, mm. okay, that breaks out in 66, and the temple's destroyed in 70, but actually there there is fighting that continues until later as well. There's the mm. big siege of Masada later too, so right. this goes on. But at the same time in Rome, you've got civil war, basically, or you've got absolute chaos, because you have what's called the Year of the Four Emperors, around 68 to 69, um, where you have Nero, you have then Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and then finally Vespasian. So this is where this guy becomes important mm. and then becomes emperor later. Um, so actually, although Vespasian has been sent out earlier to um, actually put this rebellion down by Nero, it becomes very convenient for him later because he can then also at this time of quite bloody um, sort of turmoil in Rome, he gets to put down the external enemy. He can sell it as an external enemy, even though this is an internal rebellion. So mm. he has defeated the Jewish people, and he can use that later when he is building his dynasty at Rome. He can use it in his imperial imagery, and it's, it's convenient. But Josephus is also very convenient for Vespasian because after he surrenders, after Jotapata, after he has sort of said, no, I'm not going to commit suicide, he then predicts to Vespasian, he gives a prophecy that Vespasian will become emperor. And he's not at the moment and so on. So when this eventually occurs, when there is this civil strife in Rome and things begin to look a little bit more messy and so on, and then suddenly at some point Vespasian does get does sort of come out as one of the contenders, this is an absolute gift to him that he then has a prophecy from an Eastern priest, hmm. which has a really particular resonance from a Roman perspective as well, hmm. that he can use. Um, 
Josephus is also useful later to him as well from a practical perspective, as I said, that he can be at the siege of uh, Jerusalem or to the Romans more generally, I should say, and can sort of act as translator in some ways and try to convince the rebels to surrender. But that's the really big one is that you have this prophecy that Vespasian will become emperor. And so in some ways, Josephus gets rewarded for this later as well. So he gets taken then still in yeah. chains, but uh well I suppose I suppose he stays in the in the Roman camp, doesn't he? And then finally after the the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, he gets well, I suppose where else could he go? <laughs> he goes he goes off with them. He sort of burns mm. some bridges in Judea. So he goes off with them to to Rome and he, he sort of starts on a second phase of his life, doesn't he? So this is the the writing phase. But um can you tell us a bit about um What's he up to in Rome? Where's he staying? What's yeah, he doing? So, as you say, he then sort of goes back to Rome um, and stays in Vespasian's old house, actually. And this is also the point where he mm. becomes a Roman citizen, which is kind of a privileged status as well. He gets a stipend. So this is also why um, he is somewhat unpopular in kind of in Jewish reception and in Jewish history for a long time afterwards, because A, he's changed sides and B, in some ways, he does okay out of this. We can mm. think about the practicalities and the reality of the personal situation a bit as well, which might not have been quite so rosy, that he is then a Jew living in the imperial capital after the Jews have just become this defeated people on the imperial stage. This is perhaps not so comfortable as it seems, but this is why there's a little bit of hostility to him sometimes. But yet, so he's living in Rome. And then we don't know a huge amount about his exact situation there, but we do know he started writing. This is the period where he is sort of retired, as it were. Um, so he's no longer the general, obviously, enough. And so he starts writing a huge amount. And he writes in Greek, which is significant because it suggests that he's writing for non-Jews, or at least trying to. Otherwise, he could have written in Aramaic, for example, which would have been his sort of comfortable native tongue, as it were. Um, if he's writing in Greek, then many Jews would have been able to read this as well. Um, it, sort of Greek is a very, very widespread language throughout the Roman em uh, Empire. There are very many Jews in the Roman Empire who would also have possibly only read Greek, but it's also a kind of um, lingua franca, so everyone mm. could read this, which means that if he wants to attract outsiders and inform them about his people, this is a good bet. Okay, So that's when he really starts writing a lot, basically, and it seems to be for this wider audience as well. Well, I, yeah. So, what's 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 the first? I, mean, I know he writes a ton, but and he but he writes like two kind of major work. So what's the first one that he tackles? What does he write about first? So he writes the war first, the the, the Jewish war, um, which is, we think that it's um, probably going to be published in some sense, or it's going to be available from the mid 70s. Okay, so this is essentially, in some ways, an eyewitness account of what mm. he's just been through. It's presenting uh, the Jewish war, the rebellion, and his account of it and what happened to a wider audience. And there are really interesting things about the way he does that in terms of sort of the very first, the prologue, the first bit of this war, using kind of echoes from previous Greek historiography, mm. which sort of say this was the most important war that ever happened and mm. so on, um, to really sort of 
sell what he's doing and sell why this is important and why he can really sort of say something significant about it. Well, that's yeah, that's that's what I wanted to ask. Like, was he was he using a, a like a, a literary form that existed? Like, he wasn't the first person to write this type of thing, right? No, um, he uses a lot of Greco-Roman literary forms. So if you're thinking of Greek or Roman historiography, then war is a classic subject. You're talking about war and politics. And for something like this, you're thinking mainly of Thucydides, the Peloponnesian War, you know, really the the big classic Athenian Greek work of historiography, which he's definitely trying to sell. As I said, in this kind of prologue, like I am writing about the greatest war ever and so on. This is directly looking back to that, which at the end is also then telling us about the audience and how he's almost trying to prove his literary credentials Mm. on Greek and Roman terms in some ways, Greek in particular for historiography, um, to this in this very particular setting, writing in Rome as one of the defeated people in some mm. ways too. And what about the second big book then? <laughs> Even bigger, huge book. So, yeah, so the war is in seven books. So in some ways you might think that's long enough. That's a big one. <laughs> um, big so then he does the Antiquities, which is in 20 books. Mm. Um, this is probably about 20 years later. So we're into the 90s when he finishes this. And it's actually, in some ways, it's interesting. I'm saying that he finishes this and so on. If we're thinking about ancient methods of sort of sharing materials and publications and so on, it's probably orally presented as he's going along. He might be reading out in extracts at kind of dinner parties and things like this as well. So it's a gradual process. But 90s seems to be when the Antiquities, which is the big second work, is finished. 20 books. And this is the history of the Jewish people from creation, from the point of creation of the world, (laughs) up until sort of the first year of the revolt. So this is huge, monumental. Um, And his influences for that are possibly a little bit more complicated uh, than the war, because he's using a lot of biblical history as well. So he uses, especially for the first half of this, um, the Bible as kind of his source. So we sometimes refer to that as the rewritten Bible in some ways, mm. that portion of Josephus. And then he moves on to nearer contemporary history as he goes on and he changes his sources and he might change some of his influences in the way he's writing a little bit as well. This is all very much debated by scholars as to sort of what his influences are, what kind of models he's using and so on and so forth. But this is a really monumental big one and it seems to be trying to present the history of the Jewish people perhaps to interested outsiders the next question would then be how many people would have read this how many people Mm. really would have slogged through 20 books or not it may be that actually more jews would have read this than gentiles but we don't know on that on that front yeah does he i mean does he say at any point you know maybe maybe i'm more interested in this second text in the antiquities does he say why like why he wrote this is he is he trying to convince any particular party of of anything in particular <laughs> he does say that he thinks that he is doing this because he thinks it's going to be interesting interesting to um greeks in particular as well um so he's then going to basically summarize or bring together all of this biblical history, I think the phrases in the Hebrew writings or so on, hmm. for outsiders who otherwise can't read this because they don't know Hebrew. Was the so Pent- does- I'm sorry, was the, was the uh, what's it called around yet? The um, 
Septuagint. Yes, Septuagint. Yes. yes, it was. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that that is available and around. So technically, people could read it. It's just whether they do or not, basically. Mm. Mm. Um, but there is also, I mean, this is what he claims that this is why he's doing this, and to prove that, um, sort of, show who his people are what their constitution is, um, sort of what the fortunes are that they've experienced throughout their entire history. There is perhaps something um, underlying this in terms of demonstrating that the Jewish people are an old people, an Mm. antique people. This comes through much more strongly and much more explicitly, I think, in one of his later works, a little work called The Against Appian. But it is sort of there as well, I think, in terms of proving that this is a very ancient people who have kept to their ancestral customs. And that's because that plays really well with a Roman mentality. Mm. Romans um, are sometimes very, very disparaging about many, many other peoples in antiquity, but they have a respect for things that are old and mm. peoples that are old. So this kind of emphasis might be playing to that a little bit as well. But there is also the undercurrent of explaining why the war happens too. That still comes out throughout this. It's just a much more long durée kind of approach than was in the war. And in the sense, demonstrating that the Jewish people have deviated actually from their ancestral customs and thus they have annoyed God. And so God went over to the Romans in this war and that's why they lost. So that is a kind of underlying thread that comes through this fairly monumental history as well. And there's a very sort of personal element too, isn't it? I mean, you can feel that, you know, the, the, the destruction of the temple was such a tragedy for, for all Jews. And, um, you, you really get that sense from Josephus too, don't you? I mean, it, this is, he sort of, it feels like he's sort of compelled to write this because he is desperately trying to explain this utter tragedy that's, that's befallen yeah, his people. Yeah, indeed. And that's also, I mean, we shouldn't underestimate the importance of the temple. It's In some ways, it's so ancient, and we perhaps mm. don't think of that as outsiders thinking of Judaism in antiquity, but it is absolutely central. So not just Josephus, but all of the Jewish people in antiquity, when the temple is destroyed, are going to have to go through a huge kind of um, recalibration of how they live their lives, what we call religion, sort of how Jewish religion is encompassed and is steered, even though they may not have thought about it quite so much. That's another big debate in scholarship. Um, And the extra question to that, of course, is the temple has been destroyed. Were they hoping that it would be rebuilt Hmm. at some point? Because we know it wasn't. We know this never happened. But this was the second temple. There had been a first one and it had been rebuilt Mm. actually quite a long time before. That this is possibly not an outlandish idea, not an outlandish hope. And you could think about whether Josephus is trying to present the Jewish people as very old, ancient, respectable, actually in some ways very good Roman citizens apart from, sorry, it's very good citizens of empire. They're not broadly speaking Mm. Roman citizens. Um, in order to perhaps feed into that case, it's sort of maybe not explicitly, but somewhere down the line that actually, if we look very obedient, if the problem was only a small group of Jews and it's not the Jewish people in general, maybe we get the temple back at some point. Again, not explicit, but because we know that it wasn't rebuilt, I think it's very tempting for us to assume that this was just off the table and we don't know what Mm. the kind of hope was Mm. at the time or what the reality looked like at the Mm. time. 
And he's writing all of this against the backdrop of of the of, of Vespasian, who's now come to power, and the Flavian dynasty that he's founding. And they're making a big deal about this victory over Judea, aren't they? These these Judean captives, you know, we've 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 brought them back into the empire. So it's a, it's a difficult sell, isn't it? Trying to sort of promote. The Jewish people on one side, at the same time that the Vespasian and Co are all sort of using them as, you know, highlighting the the revolts and um, and and all of that difficulty. So it's a it's, it's a difficult line, and he didn't have to write anything at all, did he? He's, um... <laughs> no, no, he didn't. I mean, this is um, it, in some ways it's quite common actually for ancient historians, as in the sense of a- history writers in antiquity, that they start writing when they've sort of gone into leisure, basically that they might have had the career and then mm. sort of they go into leisure or retirement or whatever things, and then they pick up their pen um, and start writing lots and lots of things. Um, but he didn't have to. And it is a very odd setting for him specifically in Rome, in this situation where much of the Flavian legitimacy, so Vespasian, then Titus, and then later Domitian as well, is built on this victory. So they do make a big deal of it um, in imperial imagery. They put um, sort of the image of the defeated Judea personified on coins across the empire and so on. This is really kind of made the most of. And from the Roman perspective, it is entirely because they have come to power off the back of a civil war and that's never a good look if you come to power off the back of killing your own then you you're not off to a good start but instead we've also put down the jewish rebellion and that can look like an other people so that's much more convenient so they make the most of it and then josephus is sitting there writing about the judean people the whole time as well so that it's this really interesting constellation of factors we've we've talked about a couple times in in other episodes about the passage in josephus about jesus so is it our scholars you know does everybody believe this was inserted later are there people that defend it where do you stand i think um so you might find a few people who think it's authentic. Um, I think this gets a lot of attention from a lot of also more popular kind mm-hmm. of um, approaches as well. I think the consensus, and it's very difficult to summarise the consensus because so much has been written on this mm-hmm. one passage, is that bits of it are inserted. Okay? That mm. there may have been some comments originally and that it has been tampered with later to make it a little bit more explicit and so on. Um, I'm, I think I'm probably happy with that. I, I'm not okay. entirely sure. I'm a little bit on the fence. I don't think it's entirely authentic. I'll say that like it's not. Um, but I think I probably would be willing to sort of think that there was something there that has then been added to. I think, Helen, you are probably the really good person to go to on this because you're much more into this from the sort of early Christian perspective as well. So I don't know what you think of this passage. Yeah, I I, I would agree. I, I, I think there's I, I think there's been additions by Christian scribes, but I also think there may well have been something taken mm. out because it's it's in, in in with a series of tumults, and um, it, there's no tumult in in what Josephus describes. So I think there must have been some kind of event. Maybe the episode in the temple where Jesus overturns the the tables of the money changers. Who knows? But something that Christians didn't quite like, mm. so they took out and. 
I would really like to see that passage. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see what it was that that Josephus actually wrote, because I think I think the majority opinion is that he wrote something. It's just that it's been tampered with, unfortunately. But Kim, so so I mean, the big question then, in terms of we've been talking about using Josephus as a source, how reliable do you think he is? I think it depends on the period he's talking about. If I'm honest, <laughs> I mean, I think. In some ways, he is probably fairly reliable for the war itself, partly because he claims, at least, and there's no reason to doubt this, that he sent these books to people who were involved, people like Titus. So he's got to be a little bit careful that he doesn't falsify things very, very directly. There are conventions, you know, he can put a spin on things. He might choose to emphasize one thing rather than another. Um he might choose to put a gloss on the big debate is sort of whether Titus really intended to destroy the Jerusalem temple or not. Josephus claims it was an accident and he really didn't want to. I think most people don't believe him on that. But we can perhaps um, separate much of the sort of factual elements. Okay, so bits of what happened from Josephus's interpretation of these things. And I think for the most part, he's pretty good. We obviously have to look at individual incidents, individual parts and narratives and so on, and look at what other evidence we've got and assess that on a case-by-case basis rather than we believe Josephus entirely or we don't entirely. That's always Mm. going to be overly simplistic. I think for other periods, I mean, if you're going back to the biblical period, he's very reliant on the biblical material and that will get into all sorts of holes as to whether you think this is historical or not and so on. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think one of the interesting parts, which I don't think we'll have time to talk about entirely, but which I find really interesting is actually his narrative about Herod, because it's really lengthy and really extensive, both in the war and in the antiquities. And he also contradicts himself sometimes there in terms of sort of, if you look at the parallel account of what Herod is doing. And all of that comes back to what sources we think that that Josephus was using and what he's trying to do with his source. And there I think um, he is certainly working with a really extensive source. So we can sort of get back to that and say that actually he's working probably with a contemporary source, but he's doing things with it. And the contemporary source he was working with, uh, as in contemporary to Herod, was also probably had his own spin as well. It's usually Nicolaus of Damascus, who was the court historian of Herod, is usually how it's said. Now, he is also not unbiased, to use a completely over uh, oversimplifying term. He has his own spin as well. So I think we can definitely, we have extensive information. I think Josephus is really good for some things. He's really useful for Herod's period in particular and for later. But we still have to take every single thing case by case and say, what is he doing in the narrative? How is he constructing this? What other information do we have? Do we believe him on this po- point or has he skipped over things? So that's a very long answer, which is in so- something of a hedge because I've not given a straight, you know, yes, he's good or not. But I think he's still really, really useful, let's put it that way, even if he's not completely believable all of the time or not. Well, as, as, as you've said, or as we've said a couple of times, like, believe him or not, he's, he's what, he's what we have, you know, he's, he's our, he's our one source. So why, how do we explain why his work has survived? Like, why is he the one source that, that remains in entirety from, from this period? 
that's mainly the Christian element because we have these references possibly um, to Christ in his text meant that hmm. they were interested in him and interested in preserving his text. And so we have it. And so for many other authors in antiquity and probably more than we even know about, hmm. they just got lost because there was not that interest. So the texts were not preserved and copied out in the same way. Okay. So, I mean, and beyond that, you know, the brief mentioning of, of Jesus, I mean, are there other aspects of the way that he tells the history of the Jewish people that would have been in line with what the, the, the Christian message going forward? I mean, that might be one more for you, Helen, in terms of sort of how this appealed <laughs> to, especially later Christians and copyists and so on. Yeah, well, I, I think, I mean, like, 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 Kim says it, it, it's largely having those people that we know of from the New mm. Testament. It's, it's, it's a, a perhaps nicer, more accessible way of reading the, the, um, the Hebrew scriptures as well. Um, but also, and this is the, the rather negative, um, thing here. Christians really liked his description of the siege of Jerusalem. I mean, it was horrific and, and, uh, Josephus, describes it in all its horror, all the gore. He talks about plague. He talks about terrible things. And the worst story of all is a story of a woman called Mary who eats her, her baby because she's mm. driven to, um, to such sort of depths of, um, starvation. And it's, it's a hideous story. And, um, and Christians, kept um Josephus partly because they they saw the Jewish war and the and the terrible things that happened in the siege as God's punishment on mm. the Jewish people because of what they'd done to mm. Jesus. And so this was a way of saying, yes, you know, this is this is what happened. Mm. Um so it's it's a it's not a very pleasant um story, but um but that was one of the attractions of Josephus. And Josephus was, I mean, continued to be massively popular amongst Christians um till the 17th, 18th century. It was mm. it was, I think, the first Jewish book to be published in in America was um, Josephus's Antiquities, or, or maybe it was the mm. collected works. So, but it's very much Christians, not not um, his own compatriots. I think they have only sort of Jewish um, interest in uh, Josephus is is a relatively newer thing, wouldn't yes, you say, yeah. Kim? That's um, it, I mean, it's tempting to say it's really new. It's actually not so new anymore. We've been doing it. It has been there for quite a few decades now. But in long term mm -hmm. kind of historical effects, then yes, the interest has been very much more Christian for all of the reasons that Helen's just explained so eloquently than it has on the Jewish side. Partly because of that hostility as well to what Josephus did during mm -hmm. the war and the fact that he did sort of a turncoat or a traitor is sometimes the sort yeah. of framing that's used. Well, terrific. Mm. Well, I hope this, this has been eye opening for me. I hope our listeners feel the same way. Cause we, we do throw out Josephus's name all the time when we're asking every time I say, well, is there anything outside of the Bible that mentions this? Helen's like, well, Josephus, you know, he wrote a whole book Josephus. about it. So oh, um, it's, it's important to understand. And, and it's it's uh it's fascinating to try to untangle his motivations for writing each part. So this is going to keep folks like you busy for probably a couple more centuries trying to untangle everything about Josephus. But thank you so much, Kim, and thank you, Helen, for your help with this. And this has been another episode of Biblical Time Machine. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks. Bye.
Bye.